We're going to travel a couple different places in the Bible this morning, just like we have did last week. We began, as I mentioned, uh, we began a study, a new series last week, a little bit of different thing for us. We tend to, I tend to preach through books of the Bible, and we're going to do a little bit of deviation for that uh, as we sort of lay some foundations uh, of our faith. I felt it necessary, the Lord prompting me to say, let's spend some time just digging into the foundations of our faith. Uh, if we want to have a good solid structure, those of you who have any clue about building or doesn't even take much clue about building because it just makes sense for us, right? If you want to have some, some security in the building that you're building, you have to begin with a good foundation, right? You cannot expect to have a good solid building if there's not a good foundation there. That all makes sense on a, on a, on a logical level, on a tangible physical level. It just doesn't make sense to say, well, I'm going to have the best building in the world without a foundation. But the same is true for us in our spiritual lives. If you want to have a good spiritual building, so to speak, which, by the way, is scriptural because Paul says that, right? He says, we are being built into God's house. The chief cornerstone has been laid. It's Jesus Christ. The foundation has been laid by the apostles and the prophets. And he says, you can't build on any other foundation other than that which has already been laid. It's Jesus Christ. The foundation is there. If you want to have a good spiritual house, it has to be laid on the right foundation. So that's where we're going. And in some ways, I just said it in my prayer, but in some ways, it may feel like we're going back to some basic things. I hope it is, by the way. I hope it's basic. I hope you're saying, I knew this stuff already. But I also hope that as we go through this, that you will allow the Lord again to just refresh those things. And Oh, I forgot that about God. I need that reminder about who he is. Maybe there's a few things that God will open our eyes to and say, you know, I hadn't thought about it this way. I, you know, if you have listened to me preach, uh, sat here for any number of, of years, you know that I rarely claim to make any kind of brilliant insights that you've never heard of before. It just doesn't happen that often. The reality is this shouldn't happen that often because we've had God's word for, for years and years and years, Right? And most of you, maybe not all of you, but many of us have, have desire, deep desire to walk with the Lord and, and study his word. And maybe we don't always do as good as we should. But So my aim often is, and, and we have those revelations sometimes, I suppose, but my aim is to just clearly teach what God's word says. For most times, if we can be honest, if I can say this, most times the rub isn't so much that we don't know. The rub is that we don't want to know. We don't, we don't apply it. We don't obey. We don't, we, don't, we don't walk that out. Now, maybe there's times we don't fully know as much as we ought to have, and that's part of growing, and that's good. But a lot of times, honestly, it's on the, the application side of things that we struggle with, which is why we're going to spend this first series as, as going through the statement of theology that we have as a church. What do we believe about God? And then we're going to turn to our statement of faith and practice. How does that make us live our life? Now, that's going to be a couple weeks down the road yet. Last week, I began, and again, I don't know if you have copies of these. This is available back there. We put them in the mailboxes a couple weeks ago. It's available back there on the, on the little booklet there. This is our statement of theology. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty thin, actually. It's, I think it's about 12 or 13 sections, which is about how many messages we're going to have. If you noticed, though, last week, we only got about halfway through. I promise we won't do this every time, by the way. Um, I'll, I'll try to keep one section to every Sunday. But last week, we only got halfway through, and really, I think, for a good reason, because there's a, a general sense of who God is, but there's a more specific sense of how God is revealed, and that's what we're going to get to, because we ended by talking about the fact that God is a triune God, Right? What does that mean? If God's a triune God, what does that mean? I, you, know, you guys know I like participation. Make sure you're not falling asleep on me. What does it mean to say God is a triune God? 
He's three in one. You know, just the tripart is three. The yun means there's unity in those three. Hero is where the Lord your God is one, right? And so the first part that we did, it's, the, it's actually in the first section if you're reading through this, through this pamphlet. But the first part that we got to was just the general teaching about who God is. This morning we want to look at God as the Father. So the Father is revealed in Scripture. I'm just going to read it right out of here so you hear it from here. The Father is revealed in Scripture as a person of the triune Godhead. This is what we believe. This is what you say you believe if you're part of the church here anyway. His existence and power are revealed in creation and in the function of the human conscience. He sent his son into the world for the salvation of the world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed and addressed him as his father. He is a father in a personal relationship to all who confess and follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So that's sort of the official high-sounding theological words. I'm going to attempt to take us to Scripture today and break down what do we really believe about God as the Father. We believe that God is revealed in Scripture as a Father. A Father. By the way, I was, this, I was studying this week, and I don't want to make a major point about this because I don't think it should be, but I was just fascinated as I began to think about how many things in Scripture are about fathers. You ever think about the genealogies you read through in the Old Testament? I'm guessing you probably, if you've ever read them, you probably think, why are these here, right? Why do I have to read through this guy begat, this guy begat, this? And just, it's just, just lists and lists and lists. Why is it there? Now, this is not the only reason, by the way. There's other reasons. Uh, chief among those, I think, is to show us that these are historical documents. This is truth. Like, this is, these are real people. It's not, it's not just stuff people made up. These stories about these guys, it's not made up. These are real people. We can tell you who their parents were and who their parents were and who their parents Very Mennonite of us, by the way. We can, we can trace whoever these parents are and see how we're connected. But anyway... I'm also just blown away by the fact that a simple function that happens when you read this guy father, this guy, and this guy father, this guy, and this guy father, this guy, is the over and over and over again repetitive teaching that God is a father to us. There's a relationship implied, right? That's what father means. There's a relationship implied. And God is a father to us. That's what we want to explore this morning as we look at some things. So, we're going to step in, and again, if, you have, uh, if you're following along, if you'd like to do these kind of things, on the back side of your bulletin, there's a handout that you can follow along. But in general, as we look at sort of the breadth of Scripture, let's talk about God being revealed as a Father to us. And of course, we want to read this from Scripture. But the first point I'm going to make is that God is the Father. We often call Him the Creator. When you think of the creating powers of God, we often talk about the Father. Now, you're going to see, by the way, as we go on through this, a lot of these things are going to tie together. You're going to see that Jesus is involved in creation, right? The Holy Spirit is involved in creation. Last week, when I, I don't think I even mentioned this, but last week when I talked about the Trinity, the triune God, actually, when you start reading the Bible, it's all right there in the first couple of verses, right? In the beginning, God, and then you read the next couple, about two verses later, it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering, and then it's not ex explicit in Genesis chapter 1, but when you read John chapter 1, you realize that Jesus was involved, right? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everything that was created was created through that, which is why we hear over and over in Genesis chapter 1 during the creation account, and God, what? Said, right? That's Jesus. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let it be separated. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. We see the triune God right there. But God is the creator. I'm going to start this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd love to have you turn here because I'm going to read a couple of verses. Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is at the end 
uh, towards the end of Moses' life, and he's, he's uh, uh, handing over the reins to Joshua, and uh, it's called the Song of Moses, and I don't know if you ever like think about, well, it sounds kind of weird to have them sing this, but just recognize they were not speaking in English when they wrote this, so uh, maybe it makes more sense in Hebrew than in English. But he writes these things. We're not going to read the whole song. But uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses says these things. He says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, and my speech distill as the dew. I love word pictures and this stuff. I love just, I mean, I encourage us to look at it that way. That when I'm reading scripture, that it may just... It may drop as the rain and the speech that the things you're reading distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb. Because what happens? What's going to happen to a grass that was kind of a brown after this weekend's rains? What's it going to do? It's going it's to come back and green, right? It's going to freshen up again. That's what God's word does to us. Let me go on. Verse 3. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. We're going to learn a lot about God in these verses. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. Now he turns and starts talking about people. They, us, we have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And then in verse 6 he asks the question, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and established you? I think, by the way, if I can just sort of step aside, and I want to do this too much because then it gets really long and you guys don't always care for that, but if I can just step aside a little bit for this. It's so instructive to read Scripture, not just for what it says, but for what it says to us about us. I believe over and over again when we are willing to honestly read Scripture and honestly, sincerely come to God, we run into this kind of thing all the time. He begins by just declaring how incredible God is, and there's much to talk about, right? But then he turns right around and says, but look how you treat him then. Why do you treat him like that? Is that how you repay God? All these incredible things he does, and you turn away from him? You disobey him. You don't care about him. You pursue other gods. You think it's okay to live your life the way you want to? He asked the question, right? Well, is it not him that's your father? Isn't he the one that created you? Didn't he make you? Didn't he establish you? Isn't he the very reason you exist? Those are called rhetorical questions, right? Because the answer to every one of those questions is, yes, it's implied. You can't escape it. That's why he asked it that way. How can you treat God like that? Didn't he make you? Didn't he create you? Didn't he establish you? If he wouldn't have, you wouldn't be. You see how this gets into what we believe about God? Do you really believe that about God, by the way? Do you? This is like me asking you the question specifically this morning. Do you really believe that about God? Do you believe that if God would not have made and established you, you would not exist? By the way, God spoke through Isaiah and answered that question definitively, by the way. He says, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. If you're following along, I I hate to to do this, but I have to correct myself. If you're following along on the handout, by the way, I gave you an incorrect reference. It's not Isaiah 48, 6 that I wrote down. It's Isaiah 64, 8. I don't, my apologies to you because I wish I would have not made that mistake. But that doesn't take away from what it says. 
Because he answers that question definitively in Isaiah 64, 8. We are the work of God's hands. That's why the Bible goes on to ask those questions like, how can the clay say to the potter, why did you make this me this way, right? How can you, have, how can you question God? Look at, I mean, I, maybe if you, I don't know if you still have it open. If you back, be back in Deuteronomy 32, you talk about all that God is. He is powerful. He's just. He's faithful. He has no iniquity. There's no, there's no sin in him. He's perfect. He's pure. He's holy. Every, all those things. Then how can you look at him and say, if you made me, that you made me incorrectly? That you made me wrong? That you made a mistake? Now, I don't want to discount the fact that we're going to get to this down the road here. I don't want to discount the fact that sin has an effect on us. That not everything about us is perfect anymore because sin has corrupted us. But I suspect many times the things that we have beefs with God about, about how we're made, don't have so much to do with sin as they have to do with we just don't like it. We wish it were some other way. We must keep on moving. The Father is revealed in Scripture not just as the creator, but also as the protector. I love these verses, and we could have picked out many more, but I just want to go to these because they're some of my favorite verses. They bring such comfort to us. Let me read to you Psalm chapter 68, verses 4 through 6. Listen carefully. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. You see, this is, we're talking about God this morning. God is the Father. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. And then he says this about him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary or the lonely in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. This is beginning to reveal the heart of the father, the God that we call a father, his heart. Look at these. This is why I believe our hearts as Believers should be stirred by those who are uh, at a disadvantage. He is a father to the fatherless. He is a father to the fatherless. He is a protector of the widow. That's who he is in his holiness. And he goes on to say, he sets the solitary or the lonely. If you're lonely, he puts you in a family. He has a family for you. God is, those are all words of protection, by the way. Listen carefully, because as we go through this message, not only do we learn what it means to be a father, we also learn some things about what it means to be family because families are for protection. We'll get to that a little bit later yet again. God as a father is a protector. I'm just going to keep on going. I'm going to say this way, and maybe I'll have to explain this, but I'd say it this way. I see God the father as an initiator. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm not even sure if that's a real word, but I, I, I just kind of put it in there because that's, he initiates things. God is the one who initiates things. Think about it. We already covered it, right? It makes sense. As the creator, you're the initiator, right? You have to be. Because he created things out of nothing. Like he didn't take things that existed already and make other new things like it. He created things out of nothing. That, by its definition, has to be an initiator. He initiates things. But he did more than that. Than just creating things, he initiated much more than that. For, and this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, we're going to wait and flesh this out. But because of our sinfulness, we're left at a gap from God, right? We're left driven away from God. We know that from from, uh, from the book of Genesis. Sin results in being driven away from God. But God initiated a return. In fact, if, let me read, the, and you can turn this to this too, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 
verse 14. I'm going to have you practice flipping through the Bible here this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Now, he's going to talk about some other things, but I want to really pick on what the, what the heart of the Father is in this. He says, Paul writes these words to the, to the Corinthian church. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? By the way, we often apply these verses to marriage, which is okay because it does apply. But I would contend with you that actually in this context, it's not really talking about marriage. It's talking about lots of other things that we join our lives with, uh, things that are uh, of darkness. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? All those questions, and they all rest upon this. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, and he quotes, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, most of us have a good understanding of Christian kind of speaking things, but I just want to make sure we fill in the gaps here, because we kind of made a jump, because we haven't talked about sin yet, or all those things, but we kind of made a jump to say, implied in those is that something separated us, that somewhere God's presence was no longer with us, and it couldn't be because of sin. I'll just, you, you just have to kind of stick that in there for now and hang on to it. It was because of sin. It couldn't be true. But God initiated, the heart of the Father initiated and made so that something would happen that it wouldn't have to be like that. And he says, I will come and make my home among them. I will come and dwell with them. I will come and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the whole rationale for saying, come out, be separated. Because by the way, God hasn't changed. He still cannot be around sin. Right? Right? Yeah, he still cannot be around sin. So if, though he has initiated, though he has come, he has now said, I want you to come out from that so that you, I can be your God and you can be my people. In fact, he says, this is where he uses the father language. He says, you can be my son. You can be my daughter. I will be your father. I can tell you, as I look around this room, we all have had various experiences with our earthly fathers, right? Some good, some okay, some bad. Every one of us. Some mixture of all those probably. No matter how incredible your earthly father was, nothing can compare to having the creator of the universe say, I will be your father. You can be my son. You can be my daughter. I created you, I protect you, and I initiated, I made so that I pursued you and made so that you can come to me and be my son or daughter. Paul would write these words in Galatians. Let me just flip those so I can read them for you. I love these words. They say so much, and we're going to probably bump into these words later on for, with Jesus too, but he writes in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, but when the fullness of time had come, Speaks of the sovereignty of God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When the time was right, God sent his son. God initiated God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into our world so that through him we might become right. 
and becoming right with him, becoming justified with him, he said, now I will send my spirit into you. Therefore, you're no longer slaves, but you are sons and daughters. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. By the way, can I point out to you again, in those verses, another picture of the triune God. Right? Did you notice the words I read? When the fullness of time had come, God did what? He sent his son and made us right with him. So that once we were right with him, then what did he do? He sent his spirit so that we can now be sons to the father. Right? Anyway, I think that's really cool that God does that in his word, but you may not be that excited about that. I think it's also good for us, by the way, as we sort of in general talk about what, what the father, heart of the Father is, I thought, how unique is it that we actually have four whole books of the Bible dedicated to the man Jesus Christ and his life on earth? He was the Son of God, right? And so, therefore, we get to see what a father-son relationship ought to look like. And that teaches us about the son, but it actually teaches us a lot more about the father, doesn't it? And a lot of verses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend some time here, uh, that in his relationship with Jesus, what we learn about God the Father. And a lot of verses I'm going to share, I think a lot of times we read them, and we tend to look at them, what they mean from Jesus' perspective, like as the Son. And this morning, I want to kind of flip that around and say, what does this tell us about God as the Father? The Father would do these things. And I, again, I'm going to have some participation. You can, you can uh, cheat and look ahead if you want to, because I have all my references there. But I want to have you read these next references for the rest of us. I'm not going to put them on the screen. I'm going to have you read them for us. So if you're willing to read this morning, I want you to look up the reference when I give it to you, or if you look up ahead of time, and I want you to, in a loud voice, if it helps you to stand up to project, that's fine, but in a loud voice, read that verse for us so that everyone can hear, okay? So the first one, you may not have to even look up because the first one is one we all know. It's John 3.16. So who can say John 3.16? Just say it. Somebody say it. Yeah, I don't know if you could hear Silas or not, but for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. From this, we recognize that, well, actually we recognize a couple things, and I hope you can appreciate the different levels for this. But from that, we recognize the first thing, and this is no surprise. I mean, this is not a surprise to you, right? That God is love. Because God loved everybody so much, he sent his son. But did you notice what that also speaks of the father-son relationship itself? Because of love, uh, pay attention, parents. Because of love, the father sent his son into a place that wasn't all that nice for him, but because he loved others. I, I, I can't get too distracted here, but I know I'm a dad. I have seven children. I want them all to grow up and follow the Lord. I want them all to serve the Lord. But I also recognize that when I have a daughter who looks at me and says, I want to go share the gospel in Egypt or in Saudi Arabia, I go, gulp, right? Because I love my daughter. But the heart of the father here shows that he loves, he loves his son, but he loves everyone and he's willing to send his son. And I, I can say this knowing that I'm, I'm, I'm right in the group of people I'm talking about. But I wonder if someday we will look back when we are in glory, we will look back and we will grieve 
at how we restricted our children from following the Lord because we thought we didn't want to let go of them or didn't want to send them to some place that was uncomfortable. Not from anyone here, but I've talked to families who felt the call to missions but didn't go because the place they were going they felt was not very safe for children. And I want to be careful because I, I, it's hard for me to fault parents who want to care for their children well. But I can't ignore that John 3.16, we love it because of how much it shows God's love for us, right? But we totally ignore the fact that the Father, His love, and that love means He will send His children that He loves into situations for the betterment of other people because He loves others too, just as much as He loves us and as much as He loves His Son. 1 John 4.9 says that this is love, demonstration of love. This is my paraphrase demonstration love that God sent his son while we were still sinners he didn't wait till we're cleaned up right and a couple verses later down about verse 15 or 16 he says that God is love and those who abide in him abide in love let's go on the father we see in his relationship with Jesus is love let's go to Mark chapter 1 verse 11 someone have Mark 1 11 Ah, one of my favorite places because I'm, I'm a dad and I love this kind of stuff. But you, you recall the scene, Jesus getting baptized by John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water. By the way, pay attention because you have the triune God on display here. He comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit comes down and descends on him like a dove, right? And then a voice comes from heaven. It's the Father speaking. And he says the words that Kermit just read, Mark chapter 1, verse 11. He said, behold, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Ah, I love it. But we see about the heart of a father. And again, I'm not sure if this is the best word for this. But we see that God, the father, is an encourager. He's one who undergirds. He's one who, who, look at what he does. Did Jesus know that God was pleased with him? I suspect he probably did. But how incredible to hear the voice from heaven thunder down. This is my son. I'm pleased with him. I love him. You may have heard me say this before, but I challenge you, fathers, look what happens to your children if you will do that to them. If you will introduce them, for example, to someone and say, this is my son or this is my daughter. I love them. I am well pleased with them. Try it. Try it sometime. Watch what happens. You will be amazed. It's like the water that comes to the the water the grass and it springs up and it brings forth. You will be amazed at what happens inside of them when you confess before other people that you are pleased with your children. I tell you, that's the heart. That's who God is. That's the father heart of God. He encourages his children. How many times have you been struggling and God encourages you? That's who he is. That's what he does. Again, we must keep on moving. Matthew 6, 9. Someone read Matthew 6, 9. The disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, teach us how to pray. And he begins it this way. You maybe could quote this as well. Matthew 6, 9. Who's got it? Yeah, our Father who art in heaven. Again, he immediately goes to the relationship that he has. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does the word hallowed mean? That's a word we don't usually use, right? Old English. What does hallowed mean? We should know it. I mean, not that we have to say it, but we should know what it means. What'd you say? Holler. Holler be the name. What'd you say? Holy. 
to be revered. God is holy. Now, you should see as this list develops how these things all pack together, how they strengthen each other. Remember yesterday, yesterday last week when I said that, that God is infinite and he's he, like, like, I forget, the th- I had three words together. I don't remember what they were, so I, don't, I guess I can't expect you to remember my sermons. I can't remember them. But anyway, he, he's, he's infinite, right? So every quality we see about God, everything we see about God as a father here is to, the, is to the nth degree. It's like to the fullness of everything. So everything we're reading, he's love. He's an encourager. I didn't even put it up here. He is holy. God is holy. He's perfect and he's pure. And we see that in the father relationship. Now that's important, by the way. Because we're going to get to some that we recognize that God, again, sending his son into a a, a situation that isn't that great for him. But when we remember that God is holy, then we know he did the right thing. There was no error in doing that. All right. What's the next one? John 1030. Who's got John 1030? Read it out nice and loud for us. I, a very short, simple, I mean, we could have gone to a bigger text around there, but, but Jesus in the midst of teaching, and he's in the midst of talking, and he says those words, I and my Father are one. Now, I, I, should, be, I should be forthright with you. I should be careful with this, because you might say, well, this is evidence of the triune God, that Jesus is saying he's, he's one with God. I submit to you that Jesus is actually not talking about that, because he's mentioning in the middle of all that, he says, I only do what the Father wants me to do. I can only do what he asks me. I don't do things he doesn't ask. He gives me the words to say. He's making the point that in the Father-Son relationship, that he is one with the Father. I say to you this morning, if I want to put it this way, that the God as a Father, he is intimate. He is not some far-off God. He's not some God who's a father and says, yeah, I have all these jobs for you. Go do them. I'll be sitting in my office and don't bother me too much. I can say that because sometimes that's what I do at my house. Maybe you don't have an office, but sometimes maybe as fathers, that's what we do at your house too. I believe something that we should treasure more than anything is the fact that God is an intimate God. He says, come to me. I won't turn away. I won't push you away. I won't hold you at arm's length. Come to me. In fact, he says, I'm honored when you do that, right? I'm honored when you come pursue me. There's an intimacy You can be found in God. For John to write those words that God is love, and if we abide in love, we abide in him. What does that mean? What does the word abide even mean? It means to be in him, to be be intimate with him. You can have that. I don't know if you know that or not. You can have that. Once again, I, I mean, this should just like blow our socks off. The creator of the universe said you can be in him. You can be intimate with him. And we, unfortunately, so many times say, no thanks, I have other better things to do. Really? What could you possibly have to do that's worth more than be intimate with the creator of the universe? He is intimate. One final one we're going to glean from the relationship Jesus had with the Father comes from the most painful part of Jesus' life. He's hanging on the cross. He's bleeding for our sins. He's taking the wrath of God upon him. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, he says... Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. I see that the Father, among many other things, but the Father is trustworthy. 
think of this. This is the most difficult point of Jesus' whole journey, right? This is at his, if you want to use this, our phrase, this is at the lowest place he can be. He's hanging on a cross. The wrath of God is being poured out on him. He's suffering. He's being despised and rejected by his crea- his, the things he created, by his creation. He is suffering for the sins of all of mankind for all time. And even at his lowest, even in the most difficult place, even in the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst, he says, I still commit myself to you, God, because I trust you. I have no other place to go. I commit myself to you. We have so much to learn about who the Father is that he's worthy of those things. That he is absolutely trustworthy, that when you are at the lowest at the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst, which how many times do we use that phrase and it's a bit of, of an exaggeration, right? This is the worst and it's really not because this was when it was the worst, right? God's wrath being poured out on you and he still says, I commit myself to you. All right, let's do one final section here because I just in, in sort of zooming back out from his relationship with Jesus and just some general things that we see about God. Now, some of these are things that Jesus taught but th- some general things that we learn about God. This time I'll read for us. Luke chapter 11, we also see that the Father is a provider. Let me, let me read those verses for you. Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. Jesus is teaching. I'm gonna jump right in the middle there. He's just talking about the, you should ask, seek, and knock. If you know that section of verses, you should ask, seek, and knock. He's talking about prayer. And he says this in verse 11. What father among you, he, he brings a comparison. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give a serpent, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, ouch, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Can I just point out again, there's, there's, there's a couple of verses that we see that try in God, Right? Because he talks about, Jesus is talking, and he talks about the Father, and the Father giving the Spirit. I'll stop making those references if you're tired of hearing about that. Actually, I won't stop making those references, but you may be tired of hearing about it. I see that the Father is a provider, right? He says, I can show you this. If you have an earthly father, even though you're wicked and evil, you have no, I mean, you don't get it. I mean, you mess up all the time. You, you get all, most of the time, right? If you, have a, if you have a father and they have a son and they ask for something, they're not going to give them something that's worse or something that's different. That, that just, that didn't make sense. We don't operate that way. How much more then, if we're evil, how much more than God who is perfect and holy, we covered some of those things already, how much more than will he give gifts to his children that they need? And he particularly refers, uh, refers to the uh, Holy Spirit. How much more will the Holy Spirit give, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? But in general, we see that God is the provider. Let me keep on moving here. This one is maybe not quite so much fun for us, but it is nevertheless something we need to ra- wrestle with, grapple with. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 10, this is what he says. By the way, he's just on the heels of exhorting us to follow the, the path of Jesus Christ, who underwent significant suffering for the glory that was coming. And he reminds us, by the way, if I can say this, he reminds us that I don't think you've resisted sin yet to the point of shedding blood. Last I checked, I'm guessing not anybody here has actually done that, has resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Then he goes on. Have you forgotten, in verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Once again, we're talking about this father-son, father-daughter relationship. Have you forgotten? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Again, he's going to draw a comparison to earthly fathers. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. I already had provider up there. Let me just put up there. He is the corrector. Again, it's maybe not the correct way of using this word, but as a person, he is the corrector. He is the discipliner. He's the disciplinarian. He's the one who trains us. All those words mean the same thing. Sometimes painful, sometimes not so painful, but he is the one who trains us, who corrects us. I need to tell you, as much as you embrace and love the heart of the Father, that he loves you, that he provides for you, that he cares for you, that he's intimate with you, all those things we've already, already covered, I didn't name all of them, but all those things, as much as you respond gratefully to those things, you and I ought to equally respond with gratitude to the fact that God corrects us. We don't always like to be disciplined, right? In fact, we rarely like it because we're kind of selfish and we don't like to be told that we're wrong about something. But may I remind you, if God were, for example, to give you your way and not correct you when you're wrong, how would you like that on the day of judgment, for example? How would you feel on the day of judgment? Now, this is not really going to happen. I mean, you're going you're to realize this, but it's not really going to happen. How would you feel on the day of judgment if you were to come before God and God would say, oh, yeah, I could have told you a long time ago that was wrong, but I decided not to because you didn't really like to be corrected. Yeah, thank you for being, for someone just saying, uh, betrayed. What? You knew this? You could have told me. I submit to you, it is entirely within the grasp and, in fact, the focus of God's grace to discipline us, to correct us when we are wrong so that we can repent and change and be right with him. Otherwise, we will be left hopeless on the day of judgment. I mean, I, I'm not telling you that I love discipline. I'm not telling you I'm, I have arrived at this sort of state of holiness that you all need to achieve yet. And I'm not telling you that at all. I don't like it much better than the rest of you do. In fact, some of you might be further ahead of this than, me, than I am. I am telling you theologically our belief or faith in God as the Father tells us, I am so, 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 so grateful that he corrects us when we're wrong. Because I need it. I will be hopeless without it. Once again, Look at the parallels we were laying down. I mean, I didn't, this, this is not a message on Father's Day, but it could very well be. Look at the parallel we're laying down for what we as earthly fathers are to be. He is the corrector. And let's spend some time with one of my favorite stories that Jesus ever told. I, I love this story because I, I just love it. And you, you, I think you do too. It's, we know it as the story of the prodigal son. I would tell you, it's really a story about the father. It's about the incredible father that we have. You know the story, right? Younger son goes to his dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have all my stuff? I mean, I'm paraphrasing a bit there, but that's essentially what he's saying. And the father gives him his stuff. 
and he leaves and he squanders everything. He has a high old time. He enjoys his time with all of his newfound friends. We see how friendly they are because after he's out of money, nobody's around anymore. And he's starving. He's hungry. And he's a poor Jewish boy. And he says, I'm going to go hire myself out. The only place I can find any work is with this guy raising pigs, which are untouchable for juice. And he gets to the point where he is so at the end of himself that he says, I'm so hungry, I wish I could eat what the pigs are eating. Anybody here have pigs? What do pigs eat? Slop. When's the last time you were so hungry you wished you could eat slop? What do you think this guy looked like? What do you think this guy smelled like? Whose fault was it? That's really the unfortunate part about that story, isn't it, for us at this point? Whose fault was it that he looked as he did and smelled like he did and was hungry like he was and was just an absolute mess like he was? Whose fault? Yeah. And one day he wakes up. I mean, I don't know if he literally wakes up, but he comes to himself and he realizes, even the servants in my father's household have it better than this. I need to go back to my dad. I need to tell him that I sinned against heaven. I sinned against him. I need to tell him that I don't deserve, I'm not worthy to be his son anymore. And I need to tell him, I, I, I would just want to be treated like a hired servant. Can I just be one of the servants in your house? I would tell you, by the way, everything he said there was entirely, completely accurate. He sinned against heaven, first of all, and against his dad. This is Luke chapter 15, if you're trying to look at it. I don't think I gave you the reference, but he sinned against heaven and against his dad. And he said, I am not worthy to be your son. This is so, was he right? He was absolutely right. He did not deserve, listen, can I tell you, I don't have time to go into this, but this story teaches so clearly the principles of repentance that I'm amazed that we still, we still mess it up. Look at the sign of true repentance happening here. First of all, the confession I sinned, my sin against, is against God. I was wrong. He was right. I sinned against, it affected somebody here this way. I don't deserve anything anymore. You, know, you want to know how you can tell that someone is truly repenting? One of the best signs that someone is truly repenting is when they've given up every right, when they no longer try to hold any leverage or dictate anything about how it's going to happen from there on because they realize the truth. I was wrong. I don't deserve any of it anymore. Until we have come to that place, I'm afraid we're not truly repenting. I'm afraid this is happening in our lives over and over again, and we are being deceived into thinking that we are repentant and right with God. And yet we still come with the attitude, well, I did this, but here's the reason why. That, my friends, is not repentance. It's not even saying sorry, actually. Because if you have a but behind there, it means you're still excusing yourself. Or we come and say, I know I was wrong. I asked for your forgiveness. I'm so sorry. I repent. And then we say, but I still want this. I still want to be here. I still, want to, I still, I still get to have this. I, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm making too big of a point of it. I believe in this story. This is not even my point of why I'm saying this, but I believe in this story. Maybe, this, maybe I need to be said this morning. In this story, we get crystal clear a picture that the son is going to come back to the father and he's going to say, I am not worthy of anything. I don't deserve anything. I do want to serve you. That's my desire. 
This is the picture of repentance. Notice, by the way, all of those things happen when he is still where? Still sitting in the middle of the pig slop. Which leads me to say, how many times do you hear, do I hear, a convicting message of some kind, and I agree intellectually with what it says, and in my head I realize I need to change something, and I don't ever get out of the pig slop and go make it happen. Because the final piece of repentance is to actually change, is to actually move, is to actually get out of there and begin that walk home. And all of us, there's not a one of us that doesn't know what it feels like that when we know we've messed up and we've, we've, we've made a mistake and we've got to go back and make it right, we know what that feels like. Right? Trudging down that road, dragging your feet, head hung in shame, stinking like crazy, looking like a mess, and knowing that I have every right to expect that when I get back, they're going to say, you deserved every bit of what you got. And they're going to be exactly right. This is why I love this story. Because that's not the father he finds, is it? That's not the father he finds. He comes back. And I don't know if you see this in your mind's eye, but I think you should. He is walking back. And his head is hanging, and he's probably dragging his feet, and he's probably walking slower and slower the closer he gets to home. And his dad is waiting at the end of the driveway. How many days do you think his dad was at the end of the driveway? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't tell us, but how many days was his dad at the end of the driveway? And he's watching. I have no doubt he's watching every single figure that passes up that road. And every time he sees one coming, he's, is that him? One day, lo and behold, it is. And the son who's ready to come up this, I mean, he's, I mean, he's the, the bottom, right? He, I mean, he's making an accurate confession. He's saying, I don't deserve anything. But what does the father do? The father runs out and he puts his arm around him and he kisses him. And he says, run, go, get a robe, get a ring. Get some shoes. Go get the calf. Kill it. We're going to celebrate. My son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and now he's been found. This is the heart of the father. I could put the words up there. I should put the words up there. He's compassionate. He's forgiving. He's the forgiver. He's the restorer. Every one of those words means so much. Because when, when we are exactly where we ought to be because of our sin... He has compassion on us. And when we come to make it right with him, he forgives us. But even that's not enough because he goes beyond that and he restores us. Look at what he did. He brought a robe. What's he talking? He's covering his son. Our sin needs to be covered. Can I tell you, it was covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Would you take that covering on you? Would you be willing? Are you washed in the blood, the song says? He covers him. He gives him a ring, which is a sign of belonging. It's the family seal. He says, no, 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 no. None of this servant talk. You are a son. He's a father. He will restore his son to where he belongs. And he gives him shoes, which is the sign of protection. Remember, the father is a protector. You see, God doesn't just have compassion and say, I'm so sorry for the mess you're in as a father. And he doesn't just say, when you come make it right, I'll forgive you. All those are, are fantastic enough, but he says, I will restore you. 
you will be my daughter again. You will be my son again. <laughs> this is my favorite story. Because I need that story. I need to know that when I am in a place that I should not be, that my father is waiting at the end of the driveway. Whenever I'm ready to get back up out of that slop and walk home, he's waiting. You need to know that story because when you are in a place where you ought not to be, you need to know that your father is waiting at the end of the driveway. And he is waiting for you to come home. You know, I do this so often in other places, I don't often do it here. But I cannot in good conscience be a pastor to my church body and lead you to the trough, so to speak, and not invite you to drink. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to close the service. If you are this morning in a place where you ought not to be, all those things we just wrote down on a paper about who the Father is, He wants to be your Father. I'm going to pray. I'm just going to invite this morning. If you, if you, <laughs> you know, the son was sitting in the pig slop and he had to get up and walk home. It's not quite the same thing, but I would invite you that if there's some motion necessary for you to make things right with God this morning, would you be willing to leave where you're at and walk up here and make it right with him? He's waiting at the end of the driveway for you. God, thank you so much for you as a father. Every one of those words we shared this morning, they're just so powerful for us that you are the creator and the protector, the initiator. Oh, you're the initiator. You made it possible for us to be right with you. You're love. You're holy. You're intimate. You're an encourager. You're trustworthy. You provide for us. protect us but perhaps this morning there's none in this moment we're here that we're more grateful for than the fact that you have compassion on us when we have strayed away from you you forgive us and you restore us this morning church we're in prayer I'm, we're praying where heads are down eyes are closed this morning if you are in a place where you ought not to be I beg of you I, I appeal to you today is the day to make it right with him Today is the day to decide. Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against someone else perhaps. I want to make it right. I want to go home today. I want to be right with you. And I'm just asking you, if that's where you're at this morning, would you be willing to walk forward this morning and just go on your knees here in front?